1: Welcome to New Books and Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Thirty years ago, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale developed a film that became the highest-grossing movie of 1985 and led to two popular sequels. Back to the Future appeared out of the blue to capture the attention of moviegoers. In his book, We Don't Need Roads, the making of the Back to the Future trilogy, writer Cassine Gaines has written a great overview of the series, from its earliest development through the filming and release of the three movies, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Cassine Gaines. Hi, Cassine. Thank you for talking to me.
0: Hi. Thank you for having me on. I
1: appreciate it. No problem. Uh, a lot of the podcast uh, episodes I've done are people who've written academic books of film on film, but I also like talking to uh, popular authors or people who you know who wrote books that are not necessarily just for academics, and I appreciate uh, that your book was so timely, given that the number of anniversaries that we have related to the Back to the Future trilogy. But let's start with some background. Uh, you've written before on other films and shows, but uh, what is your education, and how did you lead into writing regularly on popular culture?
0: Well, um, I went to college... At Rutgers University, and I triple majored, and actually my, my, which I don't recommend. (laughs) If if people are listening who haven't gone to school yet, I don't recommend triple majoring, but it's sort of um, uniquely positioned me to write these popular culture books. I majored in English, journalism and media studies, and American studies. And for those who don't know, American studies is sort of like um, sociology and history mixed together. It's sort of the easiest way to explain it. And what that sort of enabled me to do um, once I I also teach high school English and I've always sort of had an interest in looking at popular culture um, as cultural history. The distinction that I sort of make is, um, you know, it's easy to sort of say friends was a television show that was very popular and ran for 10 years. And it's another thing to sort of ask why and Um, What was going on in our nation at the time to create a situation where that show was so successful and resonated with so much of the public. So um, my first book was on Pee Wee's Playhouse, which I thought was an interesting subject. I grew up watching Pee Wee Herman. And again, it it was an interesting sort of um, question for me how... Paul Rubin's Pee Wee Herman character came out of nowhere, was this huge phenomenon for a couple of years, and then um, has sort of become this, this footnote or um, you know punchline, depending on who you ask. And then I wrote on the A Christmas Story film, and again, it was a similar sort of thing. That was a film that um, is really rooted in you know, 1940s Americana, but resonates with so many people Um, still to this day and what is it about either the 1940s or about what's going on in the world today that makes us nostalgic for the 1940s so um when it came to back to the future i i certainly um was very aware of the anniversaries i'm a big back to the future fan um i've been looking forward to 2015 my entire life because of the connections to the film but uh Back to the Future is immensely popular around the world. And that was something that was interesting to me. And also at the point in Robert Zemeckis, who was the director and Bob Gale, who was his collaborator and producer and writer, at the point in their career, um, how did they make this film or these three films that were so, um, popular, so well done, um, And really, it it was unusual, given the circumstances, that this film succeeded. Um, So I was interested in telling that story and looking at that.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned a Christmas story. I grew up in Cleveland, spent most of my life there, although I live in Alabama now. So, of course, I was around when they were filming in downtown Cleveland. Uh, memory serves. I think they did most of that filming in March, and so it was interesting riding the bus past Public Square and seeing all the Christmas decorations still up. You got it. And of course, they kept the Christmas decorations up in the Higby's store at the time, and it's no longer a Higby's. In fact, it's a casino now. But right. uh, it was, uh, and I know the Christmas Story House is very popular in Cleveland. So when I saw that, I said, "Well, there's another book that I I don't I've not read it, but it's definitely going to be something I'm going to reach out to." So, what led you to this project? Was it your idea, or did somebody reach out to you and and uh, ask if you wanted to write about it?
0: No, this project was my idea, and um, it was something that really came out of my own curiosity and interest in this story. Um, I, because Back to the Future is so popular and has been really consistently <laughs> the last 30 years – Um, A lot has been written on it. There's a lot of DVD and Blu-ray special features. Um, A lot of the cast and crew are forthcoming with interviews. But the more I looked for information, the more it seemed like there were uh, what I refer to as stock stories. There were certain, you know, bite-sized stories that people had told over and over again, and they had sort of become a part of this Back to the Future mythos. and it always seemed to me that there was more going on beyond those stories. Um, the best example that I can sort of give is I had known, uh, like a lot of Back to the Future fans, that Eric Stoltz was originally cast as Marty McFly before Michael J. Fox was hired. Um, but And I know that he was a little bit too serious for the role and that ultimately they let him go. And um, But I did not know, and I was curious about what it was like for the other actors working with Eric Stoltz. Um, how were the other actors and crew members affected when Eric Stoltz was let go? Um, were they, did they feel like the film was going to be DOA because they had just fired their lead actor or were they excited about having Michael J. Fox on board? And none of those questions had been answered in any of the interviews that I had seen, you know, conducted over the last 30 years. So, Questions like those led me to, um, considering developing this into a full length book project.
1: Yeah. Um. You seem to have a good relationship with many people related to the series when you speaking of of the people you talk to, and we'll talk about that in a minute, because you definitely received a lot of information particularly related to that story and some of the other stories. But what's your experience with the films? In the introduction, you talk a little bit about it, and I think it was an interesting uh, story about how you came to the Back to the Future films. So uh, when did you first see them?
0: I first saw the back to the future films um when I was elementary school aged, and I was sent home from school sick. Uh, I remember it very, very vividly <laughs> actually um I was sent home sick, and um my parents both uh, worked during the day, so I have an aunt who worked night at the night at the time, and she uh, was responsible for picking me up. We went back to her house and she had just purchased the back to the future trilogy, which actually came with a little VHS um, called the secrets of the back to the future trilogy. That was a television special that was hosted by Kirk Cameron. And um, she says, I think you'll like this and puts it on. And before the the movies even on, I remember studying the cardboard VHS um, mm-hmm. sleeve, looking at the beautiful poster art done by Drew Struzan. And, um, just being captivated by it. I I never seen a DeLorean before. I recognized Michael J. Fox from TV, but didn't really know who he was. I mean, I was a young kid. I was probably four or five. Um, But I watched the first film. I watched the second one. I watched the third one. So actually, I had a, a triple feature was my first time watching it. And I could not wait to get to school the next day and tell everyone about uh, back to the Future. You know, I, I actually remember quite a bit as a young kid, seeing movies or TV shows, watching The Twilight Zone, and then going back and uh, I had some friends of mine that were like into reading or whatever, would um like just share stories, you know, just like paraphrase or summarize these books or TV shows that we saw. So I remember... Um, sort of holding court and and re, re going you know going through all of the beats of the back to the future trilogy during lunch um and then we we played you know back to the future we uh had this this play set in the in the yard and um with a steering wheel and we would pretend to get it up to eighty eight and then we would go oh we 're back in the dinosaur time and you know run around and it was just a lot of fun
1: yeah i I was lucky enough to have actually seen that i 'm a little older than you, so I saw the film the first film, in the theater. Mm. And I still remember going to see it not knowing what to expect because um, obviously, as as you as you illustrate quite well in the book, the making of it and, and the changes and the changes of release dates happened so often. Plus it came out in the part of the summer that even back then was less um, important for summer movies. You didn't tend to bring out summer movies that late into the summer and hope that you would get... Uh, people enough interest, but yet I still remember going to see it without a real knowledge of what to expect. I know Spielberg's name, and by 85, Spielberg was already pretty well known. Mm -hmm. But then I remember walking out of the theater just totally shocked by what I had seen because it was just so different from a lot of the movies. It was fresh, and there were so many good aspects. So I could see how it would have even affected you at your younger age.
0: And and as a kid, you don't know... um you still don't totally know what is real and what is possible. You know, so when I saw the DeLorean disappear, um, I mean, I, I'm sure I had a sense that time travel was, was not real, but I really believed they made that car disappear. <laughs> you, know? I, uh, you know, when I saw Hoverboards in Back to the Future Part 2, um, there wasn't a doubt in my mind that Hoverboards were real. And so,
1: And you weren't the only one, as you point out in the book.
0: Yeah, yes, and there there are still lots of people today still hoping for hoverboards. I just saw a um an article today that Lexus perhaps has, has invented a hoverboard, but um it's it's really you know not to not to change gears too much, but I think one of the the things that um why those films connected so immediately is because so many of the effects are practical as opposed to something like jurassic world which is very popular right now but it's it's so much of it is cgi you know something like spider-man so much of it is cgi the avengers so much is cgi um you look at those star wars prequels um so much of it is cgi and so the more yes you can do more with the medium that way but um, it also makes it hard for an audience to really buy in i mean it's it 's captivating to watch, but it 's not realistic to watch and it it 's harder for people to sort of imagine themselves in that time and space um it 's very easy to watch back to the future and imagine yourself in marty mcfly 's shoes
1: yeah because it came out at, as you point out it came out at just at the tail end of where before c g a started to really take over more and more often in, in in films, and it was definitely on the same level as we saw with, say, the Indiana Jones movies, and even the initial Star Wars movies, where you could tell a lot of the materi- uh, um, effects were live, or or close to live, and, and back to the future, so things like flames, you know, you just feel like those are real flames, and things like that, so... Right. Uh, and and so that is not a big surprise that that would be something that would be interesting, even though, as you also point out in the book, uh, Bob Zemeckis wasn't overly happy with the first movie's effects in some cases because they rushed it so much to get it out.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree with you completely. I, and that's that's one of the things, you know, the more I spoke with people about Back to the Future and what transpired on set and certainly with the release dates and all the things that you alluded to, um, the more impressive it is that that film is coherent and fantastic i mean you know it's it's um there are much worse films that had a much easier time getting made you know and uh it's it's such a testament to um the crew that they assembled and to uh, bob zemeckis as a leader for um for really bringing that film to what it uh, what materialized on screen
1: Part of that may be because you had the two people, even though they were young as far as filmmaking was concerned, and specifically the two Bobs, as you refer to them, but particularly Bob Zemeckis, they were able to do what they wanted to do without a lot of hand-holding, or more importantly, without a huge amount of oversight by uh, another group. So it was a much more of a a single-vision film and series than even back then was happening. And I think having Steven Spielberg behind you definitely helped them to be able to put together a film and and film series that was so well thought out and constructed.
0: Yes, uh, and actually that's something, it's mentioned briefly in the book, but um, it's an important point that I think you're getting at. Sid Sheinberg, who was an executive at Universal, um, took a particular interest in Steven Spielberg um, especially after E. T. And right, but that, that's not true. Before, certainly before E. T. Um, but he had a particular interest in Steven Spielberg and Spielberg's work, and so, um, Sid Sheinberg was much more willing than um probably any other studio executive with any other set of filmmakers to do things like agree to let Eric Stoltz go, um, even though it was going to cost the studio almost $4 million to do so. Um, You know, when I spoke with Sid Sheinberg for this book um, and I asked him about this decision to um, you know, was it hard for you to agree to let um, them recast the part of Marty McFly uh, Sid Sheinberg's response was, well, what would you do if you had uh, the most talented director That you had ever worked with in terms of steven spielberg he was talking about the most talented director that you had ever worked with coming in and saying i don't think this film is going to be good unless we make a change you make the change i mean you know it was i had the utmost confidence in steven um and steven had the utmost confidence in bob zemeckis and so you know again when you talk about this perfect storm that made these films great um it just so happened to be a perfect Team that was assembled that would enable um, Sid Sheinberg to say yes, let's let's make the change.
1: I I interviewed a while back. I interviewed the author of a book on du- on, on Duel, Steven Spielberg's TV movie. Mm. And one of the things that came out in reading that book and talking to the author was the same concept where um, he was able Spielberg in this ca- in that case was able to show that he knew what he was doing, that he had a good vision, and that it took him a little bit of time to get the crew to go with him. But once they did, it was a group of people who seemed to know what they were doing, and it's one of the reasons why he was so successful even that back then. So it's not a surprise that he took the same tack towards uh, Bob Zemeckis and that crew, where he felt they know what they're doing, we're going to let them uh, do it. Where was Spielberg's relationship
0: with Zemeckis? When did he first work with him? Uh, Steven Spielberg met Bob Zemeckis. um, As Steven Spielberg was working on Sugarland Express, he had a test screen—I don't know if it was a test screening or just went to go show the film and have a talk um, at University of California, uh, USC, where Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale met, and uh, Robert Zemeckis went up with to see steven spielberg after he saw the film and just said i really enjoy it um i'd love to be a filmmaker i love to be a director um can i you know chat with you sometime and steven spielberg invited him to his office um so that was a relationship that had existed um, since the 70s and Steven Spielberg was an executive producer on I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was a film that the Bobs did together. And then the follow-up film Used Cars, um, which was out of Columbia, they, uh, Steven Spielberg was also executive producer of that film. And when it came time to uh, shop around Back to the Future, the Bobs didn't want Steven uh, to be associated. They were actually afraid because those two films uh, were not uh didn't have a high box office gross weren't really a success. Um they were afraid that they would gain a reputation of just uh being allowed to burn studio money because they are friends with Steven Spielberg. And so Robert Zemeckis um was able to get a job directing Romancing the Stone. It was a really horrible experience <laughs> actually. He was um almost fired. Well actually he wasn't almost fired. They almost pulled the money from him um the studio, I believe that was Fox. Um, the studio hated the test footage. They actually, um, fired him from directing Cocoon, which he was supposed to direct. Um, and then the film was a hit. Right. So that enabled him to do Back to the Future, and he decided to go back and work with Steven Spielberg, who was always interested in the project, um, and would have been involved had he not, um, withdrawn himself under the Bob's request. Uh,
1: It's the funny part about romancing the stone is like you say it was sort of even going in I don't think the studio had any real idea of what they were trying to do and the film that comes out of it is was another one of those runaway hits that I suspect nobody expected to happen or at least didn't seem like it was going to be the hit it became so there's no question that Bob Zemeck has definitely helped himself and his cause with what he was able to do with, 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 uh, romancing the stone. Of course, the good thing is Ron Howard did okay with cocoon too. So right. <laughs> at least that film got a good, good send off as well. Even if Bob Zemeckis wasn't
0: involved, you know, it's worth, it's worth mentioning, um, you, you know, I, cause I asked, uh, Bob Zemeckis about this and I, I, asked him about, you know, if, if you had the ability to make back to the future before romancing the stone, do you think the film would have turned out, um, as well as it did? And, he really, um, he's a really reflective person and acknowledged that Back to the Future was as good as it is because it was his fourth film. Um, because he had learned things through trial and error on I want to hold your hand and use cars and romancing the stone. Um, and that by the time he had done uh, the first Back to the Future and especially the sequels, um, because after, in between Back to the Future and the two sequels, he had done Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which, you know, I'm sure anyone who graduates from doing Who Framed Roger Rabbit um, can direct any film. <laughs> that's, a, that's a beast of a movie. Um, he said he really felt like he had a handle on filmmaking. He was still sort of learning as he was going um, on those first couple of films. And um, so I, it's not so much that... Um, I think Bob Zemeckis would even say, you know, things worked out the way they were supposed to in terms of the timeline. Well, given some of the other issues that he
1: ran into as far as the film was made, I think the fact that he did have Steven, – that Steven Spielberg knew he could uh, – not only was good a good filmmaker, but they could also depend on Steven Spielberg to help them when their problems did appear. And, of course, as we know, not just the first film, but each of the – that there were problems and other Issues related to casting and some of the other problems that you mentioned in the book, and so definitely having Spielberg available to them as a an, to, to assist them as needed on some of these issues was definitely important to the overall success of the of the trilogy. Absolutely,
0: absolutely, he's a, an invaluable asset,
1: and so so. One of the things I wanted to ask you about before we talk about some specific examples from the book: uh, How did you put together the the, the book itself? Obviously, you, you you talk about it in the introduction of how you were able to talk to so many people and you were you had access to archives. But what was there a specific for, way that you followed a specific uh, form that you followed to try to see who can I get in touch with? Uh, were you able to find one person who helped you
0: with other people, or how did the overall research process go for you? It was really um all of the above <laughs> actually you know um as i as I mentioned in the book um I learned very early on in working on my first book that um Every single person involved in production has a story to tell. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I didn't speak to anyone in craft services, but I'm, I'm certain that if I spoke to someone in craft services, they would have interesting stories to tell from the set, too. Um, so the first, um, for this particular book, I reached out to a gentleman named Stephen Clark first. And Stephen Clark is the executive director at backtothefuture.com. And I interviewed him and just sort of got an overview. Um, frankly, I wanted to make sure that um, I w- understood the arc, sort of the narrative arc of the creation of these films in the same way that he did. Um, and I guess what I mean more clearly is um, as much as I love these films and own several home video iterations of them um you know i i don't go to delorean car shows i i you know i don't do cosplay or anything like that so um you know someone who is much more connected um into the fan culture and the culture of these films um i wanted to make sure that in my initial initial research um i had sort of gotten it right in in broad strokes and um that was a good conversation with Stephen. and steven said well You know, I'm a great resource, but you really have to speak with Bob Gale. And I said, I'd love to speak with Bob Gale, um, but I've looked online. I don't really have a way of getting a hold of him. And Stephen was helpful in um, brokering an introduction for the two of us. And then after that, um, you know, Bob Gale was an incredible resource. I mean, um, I hope people who read the book um, appreciate sort of. Um, the smaller some of the smaller details you know signs that were outside of the amblin offices or um, what what the layout of the editing room was like or something like that and a lot of those small details sort of come from um, Bob Gale's either his records or his recollections and he is um, really he was a fantastic resource for this book and through uh, while I was corresponding with Bob Gale and with Stephen Clark, I reached out to several of the other actors. Some of them said, absolutely, I'd love to speak with you. Some of them said, you know, I'll speak to you if someone else speaks to you. Um, And so I sort of played, you know, followed those threads. And um, I didn't want to do it too much because I didn't want to take advantage of the opportunity. But every once in a while, I would really need to or want to speak to someone. um, And I would have to ask you know, Bob or Steven to broker an introduction for me. And and they were um, by and large willing to do that. So um, I was able to to speak with um, most everyone I wanted to for this book, which is really sort of um, astonishing considering so many of them are busy people. Um, I don't know if most everyone notices this, but, or realizes this, but, you know, the crew that worked on back to the future by and large, they all still work. I mean, these were amazing visual effects, special effects, stunt people. Um, You know, there's, there's almost no one associated with this film who is just, you know, sitting back and collecting royalty checks. Um, They're all working still. So they were busy and a lot of people made time for me and I, the book is better for it. And I'm, I'm appreciative for it. Yep.
1: The good thing is is that it helped you in this particular case, it's, even though it's 30 years ago, as you point out, most of the people, especially the major players, are still around and, as you say, working, so getting a hold of them. The, the, I guess the person who most um, impressed me as far as who you we were able to talk to had to have been Christopher Lloyd. I, don't know but i get the impression he's not somebody that does a lot of interviews maybe i'm wrong about that but i just felt like given how important he was to the series as a character and also as an older actor when you consider the general young age of so many of the people on the on the set um that being able to talk to him definitely had to have helped the process quite quite a bit
0: yeah i agree i mean i i'm very proud of uh that interview. And I, you are correct. It was, um, a, a little bit, uh, I, I don't want to say challenging, but he, he doesn't do a lot of interviews. So that was, um, that was really great to have him on board. And again, I think he was very, very forthcoming with me and the way that he comes across in the book, at least in my view is, you know, really as a person, you know, <laughs> I, 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 revere Christopher Lloyd, uh, with the utmost respect, lifelong fan, always will be. and. um You know, I just think that he had a very human um, reaction to uh, what it was like when they let go of Eric Stoltz. what it was like working on the sequels. Um, His own nerves and trepidations and anxieties about playing Doc Brown um, in different iterations. I was really proud of that interview. I was um, really proud to speak with um, Bob Zemeckis because I am such a fan of his work. Bob Zemeckis... um, has not made a film that I don't like. Um, So that was fantastic. And then also um, it's sort of a, a, a maybe not an obvious one, but the other person I was really proud to speak with is uh, Sid Sheinberg, who um, almost never, I I mean, I don't know if he ever does interviews on Back to the Future. I have looked online. I could not find anything. Um, I called and I had, it was a very hard time to get that interview, um, just because of scheduling and some days he would say he wanted to do it. Some days he didn't want to do it. And some days we'd have an appointment and some days, you know, he'd be pulled into a meeting. And so I, um, I, I frankly, I never thought it was going to happen, <laughs> to be honest with you. And, um, and then when it did, he was again, so forthcoming, so honest. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to it wasn't worth it for me to write this book if I was going to give information that everyone had already heard, so the more people that I could speak with, especially people who don't do um lots of interviews and who are important to the making of these films um the better and I think the film is is better for it. I wish I had an opportunity to speak with eric stoltz um i you know i I made uh, attempts and I can certainly understand why. Um, why he was disinterested. But, um, I mean, again, I think that would have just been uh, a fascinating thing just for the the sake of history to sort of um, chronicle that.
1: Let's talk a little bit about that because since I was not – I mean, I loved the film and everything, but I didn't know as much of the background until I actually read your book. So I guess I was one of the people who did not know that there was a change in the actor. Uh, but it is interesting though, going back that Michael J. Fox was always their first choice. they just couldn't get him originally because of his TV show. Uh, when we've heard that from other actors too the, the f- famous stories of actors who were supposed to be in certain roles but were blocked because of other work yeah. so um, but so they picked Eric Stoltz because they thought it was going to work and um, you really go into a lot of depth about what it was like at the point where which they were about to make the change and leading up to it, and um, it was interesting to read about what it was like, as you pointed out, on set when the changes first occurred, and what was it like uh, what were some of the things that uh, you were told things changed on the set once the actor was recast
0: well, one of the things that um you know sometimes you uh when you're speaking with people you anticipate the answer that you think they will give and i i kept asking i asked every single person that i spoke to um when eric stoltz was fired and michael j fox came in um weren't you weren't you afraid that this film was going to be ruined and um and not one person said yes you know everyone said that they were actually you know um uh, one of the editors Arthur Schmidt um, put it to me so wonderfully where he said, you know, I read the script. I knew what the movie was about. Um, I was not in a position to question Eric Stoltz's performance. And in fact, I had no reason to question it because I thought, who better to know the character of Marty McFly than Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale? So if they cast him, this must be what they want. Um, and so everyone had sort of made their peace with Eric Stoltz playing that role. And when Michael J. Fox came in and they saw, wait a second, this scene could get a laugh. (laughs) And this scene, um, has a different energy. And this scene is making Christopher Lloyd, uh, change his performance in a positive way. And now there's physical humor. Um, you know, there was Eric Stoltz was really opposed to, um, doing physical humor you know um there was one I, I don't remember if this story's in the book it might not be actually but there was this one moment where um he's in lorraine's bedroom and uh where my the character marty mcfly is in lorraine's bedroom lorraine played by leah thompson and eric uh or the character marty rather pulls up his pants and sort of falls out of frame um and Eric Stoltz couldn't understand why he would fall. You know, he's put on pants before. Why would why would he fall? And Zemeckis said, well, because it's funny. Um, And Eric goes, yeah, but it's it's stupid. Like, why would he fall? I mean, people put on pants every day. People don't fall every time they put on pants. Like, what's the reason for him falling? And there were these sort of squabbles that Eric would get into um, because he wanted it to be a serious performance. He wanted it to be a real performance. He wanted it to be grounded in, um, he wanted it to be nuanced it, to an extent. And one of the things that Michael J. Fox does so beautifully in the film is he keeps the, um, the sensibility light. He keeps it, um, moving. You don't, get bogged down in in the intricacies of the story um lots have been written lots has been written online about sort of paradoxes in the film or um inaccuracies in in terms of theories of time travel or things like that and most viewers don't even notice or care about those things because michael j fox and the rest of the cast keep such a fluidity to the story um but Eric was, was not doing that. And so they all welcomed the change, with the exception of Leah Thompson, actually, who, um, was at a point in her career where she was starting to have some, Uh, Big screen success and really was offended that they had hired a sitcom actor to be a part of this Steven Spielberg film. You know, she was she was sort of um, the word that she used, I think, was snotty. Uh, She was sort of snotty and and didn't really want to interact with Michael until she started working with him and realized that uh, he was making the film better. To this day, I wonder how the Indiana Jones movies
1: would have been like had Tom Selleck been able to get out of Magnum PI and appear in the films like they wanted him to.
0: Yeah, yeah, Isn't that it, 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 it's funny. Um, you know, you can you can play that game all night long with um, with lots of films and and just sort of playing. Would it have been better? It's an interesting question.
1: Uh, of course, one of the things you pointed out as part of the uh, of your discussion of the changeover is that Bob Zemeckis. And I assume other people claim that, that that there's no footage at all in the film that included any scenes that would have included uh, Eric Stoltz. Is that what they're what they're saying?
0: Um, that that is what they are saying.
1: Because <laughs> you, you 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 didn't really want to come out and say you believe that completely.
0: Um, I but personally, I mean, I, I I didn't put this in the book because I don't think that it's um. It's not provable, or at least it's not provable for me, and I don't know if it's provable really for anyone, but um, the editors are absolutely positive that there is no footage from Eric Stoltz in the um, in the film. Um, the Bob Gale was less certain. <laughs> Bob Gale um, said that he is pretty sure that there is no footage of Eric Stoltz. Um, I would imagine that legally they would have, you know, legally, I'm sure the answer is no. (laughs) There is no footage of Eric Stoltz. But several of the actors um, and camera crew um, said that they really only shot what they needed to. um, And that there are two points in the film that I believe um, are Eric Stoltz. And it's just, you know, my opinion based on my interviews and just my freeze frame <laughs> um, and also based on the, the production materials too, in terms of, you know, what scenes were shot, when in the timeline. But at one point, Marty punches Biff in uh, Lou's cafe in the first film. And uh, that's the 1955 cafe. And um, you can see very clearly that the eyeline of Tom Wilson, who plays Biff is much higher than it would be if it were michael j fox who is much shorter than eric stoltz and so it is either a case of a stunt double or another double um being too tall or it is not michael j fox or michael j fox's double um, the other moment is towards the beginning of the film when Marty jumps into the DeLorean before um, as the Libyan terrorists are, are chasing him. um, The person that jumps across uh, appears to be much taller than Michael J. Fox. Um, Michael J. Fox's stunt double is Michael J. Fox's height. And so um, because you cannot see the face of the actor in that moment, I've been told by people that that is Eric Stoltz. Um, And it certainly appears to, like I said, at a minimum, not be Michael J. Fox and not be Michael J. Fox's uh, regular stunt double.
1: you got to give credit to uh, the the producers and everybody that they've been able to keep any of the footage of Eric Stoltz from ever appearing anyplace. I mean, these days, you've these things sort of leak out, and it's interesting that that's... They've been able to keep it out completely, and I'm sure we'll never see any of that footage—at least in the in any time in the in the in the future to the you know recent future.
0: It's kind of amazing, um, you know. And, and this is something that uh, Robert Zemeckis has spoken about in interviews before, and he reiterated it to me. Um, it's. It's one of those things where Robert Zemeckis feels completely responsible for Eric Stoltz being cast. Um, the analogy that I'll give is it would be like if you cast Meryl Streep in Sister Act. Um, you know, Meryl Streep is, uh, a fantastic actress, but I don't know if she would be the best person to play that part <laughs> in Sister Act, for example. I mean, maybe, but maybe not. Um, or, you know, Melissa McCarthy's part in Bridesmaids or, or something like that. Um, you know, it's it's not um, Eric Stoltz's performance in Back to the Future is not a referendum on him as an actor overall. However, um, The Meccas and his producers are aware that it's almost impossible to tell the story of Eric Stoltz without the takeaway for the general public being that Eric Stoltz was so bad he needed to be fired and thus um, making it a referendum about him as an actor. And so they're, you know, they are, they don't want to do that, especially to someone who's still working. Um, So that's probably why that footage will, will uh, never see the light of day in a, a large portion. Of course, Thomas F. Wilson, from some of the
1: stories you told, was was definitely happy to see uh, um, Eric Stoltz go because of his method acting, and particularly as it relates to shoving and hitting Thomas F. Wilson's character.
0: <laughs> yes, that's kind of a, a crazy story, but... Um Yeah, you know, uh, Eric Stoltz is a very serious actor, you know, and I I don't say that facetiously. He's a serious actor. He's a studied actor, um, studied with Stella Adler, who is a revered acting coach and, um, you know, wanted to be he subscribes to the method. So he wanted to be called Marty on set. Um, The only people who didn't call him Marty are were some of the crew members that called him Rocky, which is his character in NASC the film that he had shot right before back to the future. Um, and so, yeah, he, took his job very seriously. And that included, uh, the day where in the Hill Valley high cafeteria, Eric Stoltz had to, uh, shove, uh, Biff, Tom Wilson's character and, uh, ended up really making an enemy of Tom Wilson and bruising him pretty badly.
1: Let's start to look at part two now. But of course, once again, we have a casting um, for for several movies that that ended up overall very well. Back to the Future, the trilogy definitely had its issues that could have derailed the movie in many ways. What was what was the whole controversy with Crispin Glover's character and his either unwillingness or inability to come back for the for the sequels?
0: The main issue with um Crispin Glover is that Crispin was a very polarizing figure on the set of the first film. The actors, by and large, loved him. The crew, by and large, were annoyed by him. And, um, you know, Bob Gale said to me, he he is able to divorce Crispin, the person versus, you know, Crispin um, as he appears on screen. He thinks that Crispin does a great job in Back to the Future and still despite sort of the, um, a strained personal relationship (laughs) that the two have, um, still really enjoys watching Crispin, but, you know, Crispin was a headache. Um, and so when it was time to do the sequels, you sort of had a situation where, um, the, the filmmakers were not all that eager to work with Crispin again. Um, And Crispin was not all that eager to sign back on. Um, And so, you know, I guess the the simple way of telling the story is the two sides sort of um, played chicken with each other, where Crispin knew that he, um, that George McFly in some capacity would be essential to the story. And so Crispin kept asking for more money at the same time that Bob Gale kept writing the character um, more and more out of the script. And so it finally reached a point where George McFly as a character was so was in so little of the script and Crispin was asking for so much money that um, the deal was not going to go through. And they ended up replacing Crispin Glover with a character actor named Jeffrey Wiseman. And uh, Jeffrey Weisman was really um, mistreated on set, um, certainly in, he His feeling is that he was mistreated on set, and I think, you know, Leah Thompson certainly corroborates that she wasn't um, really happy to have him there. And there were things like, you know, people would refer to him as Crispin on set, and Leah would refer to him as the actor who's playing Crispin, as opposed to the actor who's playing George McFly. Um, and... Um, Ultimately, a lawsuit resulted as a, you know, because of this casting. Um, Oh, sorry, I forgot to mention an important component of this story, which is in order to um, make the audience believe that Jeffrey Weissman um, either was Crispin Glover or at least have the visual be the same. They put Jeffrey in uh, Crispin Glover's facial appliances, so his latex makeup from the first film, his old age makeup. so that he actually resembled Crispin Glover, and um, Crispin ultimately sued for that they misappropriated his likeness.
1: You actually have a pretty good detail of that whole story, including Weissman's own contribution to that problem, and people can read about it in the book, but it's clear that... uh, the whole thing did not go over go well, and it's, it's, it's a testament, once again, that they were able to put together a movie, a, a well-made movie, even with that kind of uh, situation going on in the background. Of course, as you say, a lot of that has to do with, okay, all we have to do is write the script so that George isn't that important, and that helps us a great deal as well.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, you know, um, one of the things with the sequels, too, is that they uh, – the bobs really wrote themselves into a corner the ending of you know a lot of people believe back to the future trilogy was always conceived to be a trilogy Um, it wasn't the ending of the first film ends on a cliffhanger but it was supposed to be sort of tongue-in-cheek marty spends so much of the film trying to fix up a problem with his parents and then in the second film or then the end of the first film he has to fix a problem with his children. So it's sort of a, a play on this generational problem. Um, but it painted them into a situation where they were locked. They, they could not start the story in good faith. Um, you know, 10 years later, five years later, they really had to pick up at that moment. That's what they believed audiences wanted to, to see. Um, and so George McFly would have had to have played a part and the character of Jennifer, Who's played by claudia wells in the first film um and she was unable to appear in the sequels because of a personal issue with her mother um they had to recast that part Elizabeth shoe filled in and um you know it was it was a necessary it was a necessary thing because of the confines of the ending of the first one Mm
1: -hmm. yeah it's it's almost of course uh i remember that the difference when i saw the sequel the first time and i said wait a minute that was before I knew all the background. I said that doesn't look like the same person, and it, <laughs> even though they did a pretty good job of making of of playing up the similarities between the two, but uh, of course, then we also had uh, another major issue on the second film, and that was the stunt accident that you spend a lot of time. and The good thing is you were actually able to speak to the people who were uh, major players in that aspect in that part, and it was all related to these hoverboards again, right?
0: Right. That was um for me, um, I think that's actually the story in the book that I'm the most proud of. Um, I you know, if, if you watch the special features on the DVD, they mention so briefly, they mention, um, wow, you know, there was an accident, um, or there was an incident when we filmed this scene, and we had to shut down production for a couple of days that's all they say. Um, And so you don't really know what the nature of the accident is. You don't know why it was um, necessary that they shut down production for a couple of days. And so when I was speaking with the hoverboard actors, to be honest with you, and I know that this is probably not the best thing to say as an interviewer, but I was a little bit, um, a little bit of trepidation about approaching the the accident with them i i didn't want to make it seem like it was you know i was looking to um get a horror story from them but these actors it was impossible um for these stunt performers and the actors that were on set to talk about back to the future without talking about the accident because it was such a significant thing that um that impacted their entire view of making this film so um you know Everyone that I spoke to would give me a little bit of information, a little bit of information, a little bit of information. And then um, they would, they would, they all said, well, you really have to speak to, you know, that's really Cheryl's story. Cheryl Wheeler is the name of the stunt woman who um, was dropped from 30 feet in the air and um, really almost died uh, on the Hill Valley set. And uh, everyone kept saying, well, it's really Cheryl's story to tell. You know, I I don't want to get into it too much. It's Cheryl's story. It's Cheryl's story. And so when I called Cheryl, um, I said, you know, listen, I I really um, I want to talk about Back to the Future. And obviously, I want to talk about the accident. um, But feel free to go into as much detail or as you want or gloss over, you know, if it's painful for you. And she said, no, please. I, you know, it's it's as situation that changed my life. I'm happy to talk about it. And we had, um, you know, I I, um, say this affectionately, but it it almost could barely be described as a conversation because I was so enthralled in the way that she told this story. Um, I just listened. I mean, I had nothing to do but listen every once in a while, just ask clarifying questions. But um, it was quite amazing to me. Um, everything. And then I, uh, you know, went back to the stunt performers and they filled in the gaps and they filled in sort of their perspective and sort of what led up to um, that stunt because Cheryl Wheeler was not originally in the film. There was another stunt woman, Lisa McCullough, who uh, was in Cheryl Wheeler's role. And then Lisa left because she was, um, she didn't like the way that the stunt was set up. And so as that um, as I got a, a complete picture, I kept thinking to myself, okay, this is a fascinating story. Um, and this gets into a little bit of like the craft of putting a book like this together. I didn't know. Um, I knew I wanted to tell the story and it was a fresh story. So I wanted to tell it with some detail, but I didn't know if it could sustain an entire chapter. I didn't know how long a reader would be interested in knowing about this This story, um, and so I wrote it, um, I wrote it long, I guess. And when I submitted the first draft, um, I'm pleased to say that that one section of the book is the section that was actually, um, edited the least. That section of the book was, you know, pretty, pretty much the way it appears in print is the way it was delivered on, on first draft. Um, and that's just because, again, it was just such a great story. And I think, um, you know, Cheryl told it in such a great way. And I I hope that I, I captured it in a compelling way for the reader.
1: Well, the most interesting aspect to me, and unfortunately, given the time period in the 80s, that wasn't the, you know, the, the stun accidents, unfortunately, uh, were occurring and pretty, and I, I don't want to say regularly, but there were a number of them. And the one good thing that came out of that is seems to have been that the, the stunt group, stunt uh, professionals have done a pretty good job of cleaning it up, so to speak, so that you don't, that uh, some of the issues that Cheryl ran into, where she was of course being questioned when she was questioning Aspects of the stunt and, and things like the fact that they had tested it, they had rehearsed it, and then they took it all down right and put it back up before they filmed and that's where she f- was first starting to say this is not this is scaring me
0: yeah. and
1: even though there are still stunt accidents, I feel like uh, one of the reasons why we have movies now with stunts that are incredible so much is because the the, the industry so to speak cleaned up the stunt performance, uh, aspects.
0: Yeah. I, um, I saw a, uh, someone described for me that what happened during that hoverboard stunt accident is, um, what, you know, this theory that with every situation, there is some risk and very rarely do all of the worst case scenarios sort of line up. Um, and in that case, I mean, luckily it wasn't the absolute worst case scenario because she is still with us. Um, but it was, um, it was really a a perfect storm for a bad situation. Um, as people can read in the book, there are a number of factors that maybe if just one of those factors had been different, um, the whole situation would have turned out differently. And, and who knows? Maybe it wouldn't have, you know, it maybe it wouldn't have, but, um, there were certainly a lot of changes that were made in the last um couple moments before that stunt was done a stunt that was already giving Cheryl trepidation and and that gave Lisa McCullough trepidation um enough to leave you know weeks before the the sequence was shot um so you know there were there were warning signs certainly but um you know everyone people had a, a lot of confidence in the people that put that stunt together were seasoned veterans and um and trusted, you know, blindly by a lot of people. So
1: then we come to the third film which of course at the time was somewhat unusual in that even though it wasn't filmed quote unquote simultaneously with the second one as we do see that happening sometimes now with some uh series films. But was filmed right after the second one was finished. It literally started. There was no real break between the two, if I've got that right. Right, it was about two weeks. How? And and yet, from reading the book, it seems like it was a reasonably quiet shoot. That the third film had the least amount of issues as far as the kind of problems we've talked about with the first two. And yet you would think that the concern would be, well, geez, we've been with this movie now for a long time, especially with two and three. Uh, how do you feel the, the third film was able to be successfully filmed without some of the issues that plagued the other films?
0: Well, um, I, I'm just as surprised as, as you Um when i spoke with people and everyone said that part 3 was really a vacation um i think part of it is because they were away from los angeles they um they went out to uh sonoma or sonora i get them confused <laughs> i think i think sonora california and um and they were out in you know gold country it was quiet um so i think that's that's one aspect. Um, Number two is Michael J. Fox um, for a lot of the first film and most of the shoot of the second film he was doing Family Ties, but Family Ties um, had come to its conclusion by sometime in between, uh, sometime during the part two shoot. And so Michael was not running back and forth. Um, I think also there were a lot of nerves about Revisiting this Back to the Future material, but during the shoot for part three, um, Back to the Future two was already, you know, was already in the can. And so they sort of felt like they, it was like riding a bicycle. Um, you know, they felt more confident. And the shoot for part two was so demanding with all of the hoverboards and especially, and we didn't really speak about it, but especially, um, going back and revisiting the first film looking at events from the first movie from a different perspective um that took a lot of work and a lot of skill and it was very very arduous for the cast and crew to make sure that there were um little to no continuity errors so it was a stressful shoot um that that shoot and so it was it was kind of um a a real resort like attitude they they had um they had you know, sort of Olympics, Olympic games that they that they played during lunch, um, and uh, rode horses, and um, they had a, a really good time. It was a nice, almost victory lap for for everyone working on those movies. A, a nice way to um, to almost celebrate their work while they were still doing the work.
1: I wonder how much of the uh, reasonably quiet atmosphere for the third one also was. Because the second one hadn't been released yet, they didn't have to worry about, okay, what are we going to do? Because obviously, as you point out in the book, the second movie had its detractors, particularly those who didn't like the fact that there was no ending to it. Right. Uh, but I think maybe that helped too in that they didn't have to try to one-up the second one because they didn't know what to expect because the second one hadn't been released yet. So maybe that helped as well. and and you're right. I think part of it is it's it in comparison, particularly to the second one, it's a much quieter, uh, you know, with, with fewer uh, effects or, or stunt things that made such a big deal. You didn't have to try to pretend what the what the past looked like because you knew. Right. You didn't have to make up a brand new future like you did with uh, 2015 that right. we know now.
0: <laughs> and Back Isn't it isn't it funny that a film, you know, I always think that Back to the Future is Marty's film. Um Back to the Future 2 I think about as being like Biff's film and Back to the Future 3 being Doc Brown's film and I think it's so funny that um the film centered around the wild-eyed, uh, you know, scientist is the quietest film <laughs> of the three. It's sort of incongruous to what you would think, but um but, yeah, somehow there's, a, there's a, a beautiful calm to that movie.
1: What do you think, as we're starting to wind down, uh, why is the series so popular? I mean, is, if, with all of your discussing with various people who are involved in your own viewing, is there something in particular that you feel makes the series to be so popular even today where it's something that, you know, now we're at the 30th anniversary,
0: but uh, people still love the films? I think it's a couple of things. Um, first of all, I think Back to the Future is one of the best ideas for a film. Um, it's, it's so simple, but it's so creative to take a teenager and have him go back in time and see his parents as teenagers and accidentally interfere, interfere with their meeting and have to, uh, fix them back up. Otherwise it will threaten his own existence. I mean, it's just a a smart, smart concept. And, you know, even, um, with Eric Stoltz, or even if any of these things that ended up going right on the film, um, hadn't, I would bet that it would still be a film that we, uh, are talking that we would be talking about because of just the creativity of the concept. Um I also think that it was sort of perfect um the time period. You know, it it came out in 1985, it takes place in 1985, but we are always nostalgic for the 1950s. It's a reason why every generation still loves the film Grease, you know, and, and everyone will. You know, there's something about that time period that's sort of magical for people. And so it worked out right for Marty to go back 30 years into the 1950s. And so much of that film is a period piece. Um, and even if you watch the film today, you know, a child watching it today would see it as a period piece of the 80s. And um and it, it embraces its eighties-ness. You know, in a lot of ways, if you have slang in a film or if you have product placement in a film, it, it dates it in a negative way. But because it's a film about time travel, um, Back to the Future will never feel old in that regard. Um and I think the third reason is just the time travel concept in and of itself. You know, people are always fascinated with time travel, um, you know, this idea that every event in your life leads to another event. And, um, you know, if if people had the opportunity to go back in time and give a piece of advice to their past selves or um, change something about their lives, I'm sure most people would would do that, um, even even if they they knew there would be consequences. Potentially, I'm sure most people would do it. Um, and so I think Back to the Future cap, you know, capitalizes on that curiosity and does it in such a fun, fun way.
1: I think part of that re- related to that is the fact that I don't feel like the filmmakers, they certainly didn't treat, they treated the audience as intelligent. Yeah. They would understand that even though it was a comedy and obviously that means Sometimes you just do things for comedic effect. They were careful, so you see the changes of what happened. Uh, something as simple as the name of the mall changing between the first, between when Marty goes back and when he comes back because of the one, tr- the one pine being knocked down, and and of course the obvious things about the changes in his parents. But that's the kind of thing where you feel like the filmmakers decided, well, we want to show our audience that we've paid attention to all these things. That the details are important, and I think. Looking back and watching the film and seeing those things adds to its overall quality.
0: No, I agree with you. And, you know, again, I I know I already made this point, but it's I, I keep bringing it up because I remain in awe of this myself, you know. These were filmmakers, Bob Zemeckis, Bob Gale, Neil Canton, Frank Marshall, Kathy Kennedy, um, you know, the people that were on set every day because Steven Spielberg wasn't on set every day, you know, he was an executive producer, but um, these were filmmakers that made a film that frankly was um, better than they were at that point in their careers. I mean, I don't know if that's, if that's the, um, the right way to, to to phrase it, but you know, you look at romancing the stone and you look at back to the future and there is a world of difference <laughs> between those two films. You look at used cars and you look at back to the future and it, it's hard to believe that the same filmmakers made those films, you know, they all came together and showed up every day trying to make their best work and, uh, they really did. And, you know, I, I think a testament to that, I saw the trailer for Robert Zemeckis' new film, uh, The Walk. And uh, the, at least in the teaser trailer, it starts with the the text from uh, Robert Zemeckis, director of Back to the Future, Forrest Gump, Cast Away. And I don't know of any other director or any other, any other director, especially director with a career as storied and successful as Robert Zemeckis, still celebrating a film that came out 30 years ago in the trailer for a new work. Um, It's just a testament to how good that film is that Back to the Future leads. Um, When you think about, you know, when, when they're trying to sell a a film to an audience they want you to think of back to the future as robert zemeckis's crown achievement
1: well, and you're right that the rest of the people that were involved were pretty good filmmakers too. I mean, I heard this. I've heard of this Kathleen Kennedy before. I heard she's got some new film coming out in December.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I can't remember what it's called. Um, no, it's uh,
1: something to do with stars, but I'm not some, sure. Battle some, Beyond some. the Star Wars or something. Anyway, <laughs> so what are you working
0: on? Do you have anything
1: else in the pike coming forward, or, or are you just going to be waiting in for your next project to come along?
0: Um, I I have um, a project that I'm working on but um oh, but that's all i can say yeah, i understand <laughs> um i i i will say that the um the the project that i'm working on is um it's less of a look at a particular film and more a look at um a, a filmmaker and um uh, his his career and uh, the impact of that career on a uh, on the industry and and the world so it's it's more biography than um sort of uh look at a property i
1: have
0: to also ask you do your
1: students look at you in awe since you teach high school english or do they say i mean do they think to yourself we've got a published author for our teachers or does that not really hit them
0: um, I think it hits some of them. Um, I just got a, a wonderful email from one of the book just came out yesterday. Um, we're, we're speaking on the 24th. Right. So, um, so I got an email from one of my students. The school year has already ended, but, um, she said, I downloaded your book on, on, um, Kindle and I'm about three chapters in. And you write pretty well. I so I thought that was I thought that was oh, nice. that's good. <laughs> that uh, that I, I have uh, I have her endorsement <laughs> for the first three chapters at least. But um, you know, some of them have read uh, my books. Some of them, uh, you know, it's I for me, um, especially being a teacher of English, I talk about my books in class from the position of. Really craft and structure, um, and the importance of outlining, the importance of revising. Um, you know, it, it's funny because I think sometimes um, people look at books based on movies or books about, you know, making of books, and they go like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's a book about Back to the Future, and that's, you know, it's not like a real book or something like that. And, um, you know, not just me, but I, every pop culture cultural study book that I've ever read um, is a very serious book. You know, I, um, I as a kid, read a book by Leonard Maltin on Our Gang, uh, which is just fantastic. Um, and when I spoke with Leonard Maltin for this book, I told him, you know, quite literally reading that book uh, changed my life. I mean, that's not an exaggeration. Um, I read a book by Mark Scott Zakri, The Twilight Zone Companion, and he uh, read this book and wrote a nice comment that we put um in the front of it. But the point that I'm making is that those are serious, serious books and they take a serious look at these fun things. Um And so I, I talk about how it doesn't matter what you're writing about. It doesn't matter if it's a personal thing. It doesn't matter if it's a poem. It doesn't matter if it's silly. Um, the idea is that you always have to take your work seriously. And if you take your work seriously, um, other people will as well. You know, the, the stupidest comedy film is done with a lot of seriousness behind the scenes. And so, um, write what you want to write, but always have integrity in your work.
1: Well, as I say, I, I'm looking forward to whatever you choose to do because, uh, as I say, I'm going to have to go back and find the Christmas Story book uh, since I remember a little bits and pieces from actual filming. But thanks for talking to me. Uh, we obviously could have gone even longer, but uh, I really appreciate the amount of detail. And you definitely wrote a fun book, but also a very informative book. And I hope fans of the series and reach out and, and read it because it's definitely worth. The time. And I hope that maybe someday I'll talk to you again about some future project.
0: Thank you. I hope to speak to you in the future. We'll end this with To Be Continued. There we go. Thanks a lot. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Cassine, for speaking with me. I hope that fans of the trilogy find your book to be a great companion to the series. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.